Welcome uh, again this morning to worship. My name is Jenny. I'm the associate pastor here at Bethany Northeast, uh, and I have the privilege of sharing our message today. Today is our last Sunday in the season of Lent. This is the season in the church calendar, for those who may not be familiar. It leads up to Easter. It's about 40-ish days, and it helps us prepare our hearts and minds to remember Jesus' sacrifice of suffering and death, and then which we'll do on Good Friday, this Friday, and then uh, ultimately to celebrate his victory in the resurrection on Easter. And we've been slowly making our way through Psalm 23, during Lent this year, uh, literally taking one verse or even half a verse at times a week, and we've been intentionally slowing down and encouraging you all to meditate on this psalm with us, uh, to take time to really consider how God can work in us slowing down and just focusing on one little section of his word. And today is then also Palm Sunday. Hopefully you noticed there's some palms around. Uh, Maybe you saw some kids or adults waving palms at you on your way in. And Palm Sunday is always the Sunday right before Easter. This is the Sunday. This is just a little general background for those who are maybe newer to church calendar type things. Um, Palm Sunday is the day when we remember the moment that Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem. This is the city where he was going to be killed. This is the city uh, where there were many people who were out, kind of out to um, do him in or end his ministry. And as he rode into Jerusalem, he rode on a donkey, right? And he, um, there were people gathered from everywhere to welcome him, to wave palm branches at him, to lay down their jackets for his donkey that he was riding to walk on. They were shouting praises at him. Basically, they're giving him a kingly reception. Um, They're expecting him to be this king who's going to overthrow their government, who's going to establish a new kingdom. And of course, just days later, uh, we believe many of these same people are going to be shouting for him to be killed. And what we're going to be looking at this morning is how Jesus' final days on this earth. So from that time he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, what we celebrate as Palm Sunday, to his death just a week or maybe a few days later, how that connects to Psalm 23 and what we can learn from how Jesus approached some of those moments um, of his final week, his final moments. So let's pray and then we'll dive in. God, we give you thanks for the beauty of this Sunday for the ways that, God, you have used this Palm Sunday over the millennia to teach us. And we ask that, God, your word would teach us today as we meditate on Psalm 23 and on your life as you lived here on earth. Would you teach our hearts, God, something new about you and open our minds to understand you better. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to start with a little vulnerability with you all. Um, I, this has been a hard week for me. I, uh, harder than most weeks, actually, in recent memory. Um, and there's maybe several reasons for that. And the first is what I shared last Sunday with you all, um, that I'm going to be leaving my position here at Bethany Northeast in a few months. And I'm going to be uh, joining Matt at Trinity Presbyterian, where he works, uh, my husband. And we're going to be kind of ministering together in a new season. And, <laughs> yeah, oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, that's, 
exciting for what's next, right? I'm looking forward to kind of a new season of ministry and getting to serve with my husband, of course. Um, But of course, I'm also grieving. This has been a week of grieving for me, of starting to realize sort of all of the weight that this decision carries relationally for me um, and for many of you. And I've been wanting to be with you all as much as possible and hoping to get to do that in these next months. So that's been one side of my week. And then the other side of my week is Matt and I uh, closed on a house about 10 days ago. I know. And actually, I think I shared about trying to buy a house a couple months ago. We didn't think it was even maybe possible. And uh, kind of at the turn of a dime, we suddenly were closing on a house. And um, so this has been a week. We moved in yesterday. And so this has been a week of, uh, of excitement and intense kind of emotion that way. Um, and then, of course, on top of all this, we decided as soon as we had keys to our house, and actually a little before we had keys because the neighbors made a mistake and gave us the keys early, um, we decided that we were going to start scraping popcorn off of every ceiling in our house. And so uh, last Friday, starting a week ago Friday, we started scraping off popcorn, which I thought would be the hard part of this project. Uh, and it was hard, and, but it was also super satisfying and uh, super messy. And we were done in two days. And then we had to paint. And that actually took a lot longer than I thought it would. And so we've been spending every spare moment um, after work till late, late into the night uh, painting now, or priming, painting, painting another coat on every ceiling of our new house. And it's taken hours um, and hours and hours, and my back and my shoulders are still really painful this morning. But uh, I'm just sharing kind of, this has been my week with you. And then add that to the fact that I'm actually in the middle of my busy season with accounting. And so I've been working extra hours at my accounting firm. I'm only part-time there, but a little more part-time um, lately. And, uh, and then we did. We actually moved yesterday. All of our stuff is now in our new house, which is crazy. So it's been a season for me, a short season, but a season of intensity. I was reflecting on this as I was studying this week. Intense work, intense grief, uh, intense excitement and anticipation all kind of rolled into one. And truth be told, I've actually felt a little guilty about that. Because uh, whenever someone mentions that it's Lent, I kind of go, yeah, it's Lent. (laughs) That's right. Uh, I should have a pastor. Like, I should probably be (laughs) the one who's mentioning that to you. But... uh, I've been eating pizza and fast food almost every night as we've been in all these projects and moving, and um, I don't have any any Lenten rhythms this year, and normally I do. I try to be intentional in this time of preparation for Easter, for this kind of height of our church's year and height of really our faith in celebrating this resurrection of Jesus and, and his death, and I've been wondering, will I even really be able to sort of experience Good Friday and Easter this year in a way that is meaningful with everything else kind of going on in my life? And maybe some of you are in that boat. I know we, a lot of us living in a city carry busy, full lives, and it can be hard to feel like we're ever really slowing down enough, though we've tried, right, with Psalm 23, slowing down enough to pay attention and really soak in what this means for us. But what I've been encouraged by in my study um, is that Jesus' final week on this earth was not retreating in the mountains, and it wasn't a really slowed-down, thoughtful week for him. In many ways, it was a very intense week. He actually did a ton of teaching as soon as he entered Jerusalem. Um, And then 
he was leading up to the Passover feast, which is one of the biggest holidays in the Jewish calendar. Maybe the equivalent of Christmas to us, although I don't think with all the consumerism, hopefully, but big deal. Jesus must have been facing a huge mix of emotions, right? And as we learn from him today, I want us to pay attention to how Jesus responds as he's preparing for his own suffering and death. And for then, his re- I mean, his resurrection as well, he knows that's coming too. But as he's preparing for all of this, I want to pay attention to how God, his father, cares for the son in those moments, in this last week. And I, I think what we'll learn is God is caring deeply for him in, prep- in preparing him for what is coming. Uh, and then I think we'll find that the shepherd, our creator, cares for uh, the son as he's approaching the cross, and that when we acknowledge that God does not always protect us from suffering, us from pain, that at times he's even maybe leading us towards the people or circumstances that are going to cause suffering or pain, we still experience God's provision and care for us and mercy in those moments. And there's going to be three symbols of care. This is your outline if you're an outline person. Three symbols of the Father's care that we're going to find in both Psalm 23 and in Jesus' life in those last weeks. The first is a prepared table. The second is anointing oil for suffering. And the third is a cup, a cup overflowing. So let's look at Psalm 23 first. I don't know how many of you have been meditating on this psalm with us the last week. I've been thinking a lot about Psalm 23 these last few months. And I've actually loved that we're spending so much time with a six-passage verse. I was pretty skeptical of teaching one verse at a time, even though I only had to do one sermon of that. So I've had it easier. But I actually think it's been uncovering a lot for us. Um, And what I've discovered in my reading is that I actually used to skip over Psalm 23 a little bit in my reading. It's very familiar. Um, It's the kind of, always seemed to me like the feel-good kind of psalm that um, God is my shepherd, everything is great, kind of just, it makes you feel comfy. But I I think it was just a little too over-familiar for me. And so I would kind of skip over it. And then uh, I've been realizing that this psalm has probably become so popular over the centuries because it is precisely not just a feel-good psalm. It is comforting, but it's comforting precisely because it actually delves into some of our deepest um, human condition things, the things that are hard, the things that we face, like death, that are real. And that's why it's actually such a deep psalm and why we've been able to spend six weeks on it. And I think what we'll find is this psalm shows us that we're sheltered. From, we're not, that we're not sheltered from all that, excuse me, but that we're cared for in the midst of it. I was reading over the psalm again with fresh eyes this week. I want to kind of recap what I was noticing uh, in the first few verses. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. That's the first verse. And this provides us this comforting thought of God as pro- provider and protector, but it's also actually revealing to us, it's a little bit double-edged, sword, because it's also revealing to us how much we want that we don't actually need, and how our, our kind of endless needs are often, or what we think of as needs, are often not rooted in truth. And so it's a, it's a revealing verse to us, and the simplicity of what we truly need is provided for our God. That's a message that is hard for us at times. Second verse, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. 
I'm going to take a little bit of a leap here. The original Hebrew in Psalm uh, 23, verse 2, when it says he makes me lie down, is not connoting this idea that he's forcing you to lie down, that the shepherd is. But I will say that I appreciate the English translation because there are times in my life when I need to be almost made to rest, right? When I need God to say, slow down, maybe in a more forceful way. And I think there's something in that. We have to rest as humans, just as sheep do, and we need someone to often guide us to doing that. We are often wired to just go, go, go. Okay, one more observation. Verse 3, he restores my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. This also, again, sounds so comforting and sort of on the surface, uh, just maybe for, you, for some of you, just an over-familiar verse. But the literal translation here is God turns me around. He restores my soul is not the literal reading. He turns me around. In other words, I got off on the wrong path, and God has turned me around to the right path, which is a revealing thing about our sin and how much we need God to sort of help us get back on path every time. We are sheep people, and we tend to get off path a lot. And it's just thinking, I guess Psalm 23 reflects to me much more of the human condition than I ever gave it credit for, is what I'm trying to say. And because this verse 5 also initially sounds lovely, uh, whenever I've read this verse, I would picture myself sitting down in a grassy field with a picnic spread out before me, um, and, and there's wine flowing, and there's olive oil flowing, and it sounds beautiful, right? That's what I pictured when I read verse 5. You prepare a table before me. But I actually think as we're going to reflect on Holy Week and Jesus' final days on earth, this verse actually has a much deeper meaning as well. One that's less idyllic maybe, but is much more real. And uh, we're going to start with sort of understanding how this might apply as to a shepherd to sheep and then how it applied in Jesus' life. Uh, so notice that in verse 5, it says a table is spread out by the shepherd in the, in the presence of enemies. And this is a weird analogy. And it was a, uh, usually a phrase I would skip over in my mind picture of the picnic table is that presence of enemies part. But if we're going to continue the shepherd metaphor, shepherds would often take their sheep up to the high country, up the mountains in the summertime. When everything else was dying down in the lowlands, they would take the sheep to the mountains and find meadows there. And if you've ever been hiking in August, you know that it will be dead grass here, and it will be wildflowers and springtime in the, in the higher elevations, right? That's what the shepherds would do. And they called these tables or plateaus um, in the wilderness where these sheep could eat late in the summer. And it turns out it was customary for a sheep owner to go ahead, way ahead of the sheep, before the snow had even all melted, and figure out where those tables were and where the right paths to get up to them would be. And then he'd go back, he or she, would go back right before the sheep were actually going to be led up there, and they would prepare the land. They'd literally put minerals out for the sheep to make sure they got enough of what they need while they were grazing. They determine whether there are any poisonous weeds or plants to be avoided and plucked out. And they would literally either avoid those places altogether or spend time pulling poisonous weeds. And they'd make sure that they knew where to make camp and where there was enough food. And then when the sheep arrived, the shepherd has prepared the tableland. But the risk of enemies in that space is great. Now, it's kind of great everywhere because sheep are fairly vulnerable animals. 
But the sheep are exposed on these flat mountain meadows, and yet there are often ridges up all around where enemies like cougars and wolves and bears can sort of watch to see who might be vulnerable and take advantage of the split second of any one sheep that strays right too far from the shepherd. And so the shepherd keeps a close eye but leads the sheep right into that danger right into that territory and invites them to feast on the land and enjoy the abundance in the presence of danger. The sheep implicitly trust the shepherd and follow him into the presence of the enemies, you could say. So that's one way to read this metaphor. Now Jesus embodies what this looks like to us in a really powerful way during his last week of his life. He is not only our shepherd, remember, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd in John, but he also allows himself to become a sheep like us, quote unquote, uh, when he is born in this world and allows himself to be led by the will of the Father while he's on earth. And as he approaches what he knows to be his own death, he starts to embody what the psalmist David writes, I think. So we see it in Matthew 26. And if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn there because we're going to actually have a lot of stories to look at all in this one chapter, Psalm, uh, Matthew 26. First, we're going to read about Jesus' account of sitting at a literal table with enemies right next to him. And it starts in verse 20. Jesus is sitting at table. He's with his disciples. They're about to eat a meal, and it's not just any meal, right? This is the Passover meal. This is, I mean, forgive me, this isn't an exact correlation, but this is Thanksgiving or Christmas to us. This is an important celebration you would do with your closest family and friends. And he's sitting at table, uh, and while they're eating, Jesus casually brings up, one of you is going to betray me. Matthew, the writer of this gospel, actually has already given this away. He's already told us that Judas, one of the disciples, is uh, met with some Jewish leaders and promised to offer Jesus up for 30 pieces of silver uh, in a private setting because they didn't want to do it in public. And so Jesus knows he has an enemy present, quote-unquote, right? He identifies Judas, and not just any enemy. He says, it's the one of you who has been sharing my bowl here at this table meaning an intimate friend of Jesus, one who would sit close to Jesus at this supper, is, uh, so, has sold him out. And yet Jesus somehow still trusts the Father and willingly shares this sacred meal with his betrayer. He sits at a table with his enemy and trusts that it will turn out for good. And you could argue that Judas is not the only problem disciple at the table, but you can't... You, you can argue it, you would be right. Uh, in fact, every single one of the disciples at that table are about to, in some way, abandon him, desert him. They're going to fall asleep as he weeps in prayer just a few hours later. And then they're going to flee for fear of their own lives when they see him get arrested. And Peter, who famously right, says he's ready to die with Jesus, in this chapter he says that, is about to just deny even knowing Jesus. And so the Son of God, during his last meal on earth, at, at this, before his resurrection, he's sitting at table with enemies and with those who will abandon him. And at times, I think we might be called to this kind of obedience, even with family or friends or those who have hurt us. And let me be clear, this is not a, a call to stay in situations uh, of abuse or mistreatment. It's not that. 
We are called to also be wise to care for our bodies and our minds and not to undergo abuse that is repeated or damaging to ourselves or others. But there are moments when we are invited to a table with coworkers, with family members, with people who maybe don't feel like they're for us, who may not cause us active physical harm, but who have abandoned us, who have caused us emotional pain. The shepherd leads the sheep to a feast in the presence of enemies and then invites them to eat and to drink and to enjoy the nourishment that comes and to not run from conflict or because of potential conflict. And I've shared this before. I have an aversion to conflict. Um, Marriage has helped this a little, but I uh, tend to avoid people who cause drama or who invite conflict at all costs. And I tend to also be a peacemaker, which I'm not sure is the right word, actually, because I don't want true peace. I just want the illusion of peace. That's fine. Um, Real peacemakers, I think, actually want to get to the true peace that comes after the reconciliation. And I'm like, let's just, let's just stay here. And I, I, I recognize that's a fault in myself, right? I shrink inside thinking about the conversation Jesus has with his disciples at this table. Because he says, one of you is going to betray me. After the supper's over, we'll get to this later, he says, actually, you're all going to. You're all going to deny me. And God says, stay there. Stay in those relationships. I can handle this. Stay in relationship with those people who are imperfect, who make you mad, who maybe even mean you harm at times. And I will show up. Have the hard conversations. Don't just celebrate holidays with only the people who love you well. Maybe. Maybe that's the application for you. Uh, Eventually, you might end up eating by yourself, for one. But also, God says, "It's, it's okay. Stay in it. There is fruit after this conflict. And there is for these disciples, friends. They end up going on after their failure to be what? The foundation of the church. To actually die for Jesus, many of them. And I think what God says is, I will be your shepherd with a sharp rod when it is needed for your protection. But if you avoid it, if you avoid that high mountain country altogether with the nutrients and the richest of foods that you need and you desire, you avoid deep relationship with me. And so Jesus steps into dinner knowing he will be dining with those who will betray him, who will abandon him, and in faithful obedience to his Father, with a promise that this meal is going to nourish him, and it's going to nourish his disciples, and it is going to pave a path to nourish the whole world, as we'll look at in, uh, as we look at the cup a few verses later. And so there is fruit, there is this promise at the end, and God says, I will prepare a table before you, And yeah, it'll be in the presence of your enemies, but it will prepare you and nourish you and nourish our relationship. So we'll get to the the cup, which is kind of the culmination of this table. But first, we're going to turn our attention to the second symbol in Matthew 23, verse 5. When this, where the psalmist says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And then it says, you anoint my head with oil. And this can be a strange analogy for us today because we don't really associate anointing with oil as a dinner table analogy or even a sheep analogy. 
Um, so it sounds a little odd, sandwiched between a, a line about a table and a line about a cup that overflows. But if we continue with the sheep analogy for a minute, bear with me, it, there is a chance that David is no longer talking about sheep. But there are some scholars who say, yes, he is. So we're going to just talk about both options. And it turns out that uh, with the sheep, shepherds would often rub oil into sheep's wounds to help them keep from disease spreading from their wounds, rubbing up against other sheep. It would also help soothe their open source. Another use for oil with sheep, this is my favorite sheep fact I learned so far, shepherds would rub down the heads and the horns of the male sheep before mating season so that when they started challenging each other in headbutting duels over their favorite lady sheeps, they would not hurt each other as badly, right? They would glance off each other. And I've heard it's a funny... um, I didn't look up any YouTube videos of this, but I heard it's funny uh, to watch and look silly, but it literally is a protection as they were heading into inevitable battles. Okay, well, so that's the sheep side. I'm, I'm not going to go too far down that path, but the notion of anointing with oil in the Old, Test- Old Testament, right, is very common. Uh, more broadly, it was always a sign of respect in Jewish culture. Um, And it was a way that kings and priests would be anointed for their position as they were entering into it. Uh, And the meaning here isn't totally clear. David, the shepherd, could be talking about treating his sheep for wounds or, or preparing them for battle. But he may also be talking about God anointing him as king, right? And he may just be talking about a third use for anointing oil. When you show up to a dinner party, your host may anoint you with oil uh, as a sign of respect ahead of your meal so that you would feel like you have a place at this table. You are welcome here. But in most cases, though, anointing, um, anointing is done in preparation for something. Whether it's for a dinner party or taking on a heavy mantle of leadership like a king becoming a crowned king, or, or for a battle as a sheep, it's a preparation for something. And in Christian circles, it's the same still. I think we, you may hear people talk about, oh, they have an anointing of the Holy Spirit. It's probably in more charismatic churches than Bethany that you would hear that thrown around a lot. But uh, we do say that, and that's a beautiful picture of God having prepared someone for something, for teaching, for counseling, for pastoring. In Matthew 26, We also see Jesus receives an anointing during this week leading up to his suffering and death. And uh, we're going to go backwards in Matthew 26 if you have your Bibles. We're going to go back to verse 6. I'm going to paraphrase a little. Jesus is also attending a dinner party a few days before Passover. He's with his disciples. They're at their friend Simon's house. And at that dinner party, they're sitting down at the table talking. And a woman knocks at the door and asks to see Jesus. And Simon lets her in. And she takes this beautiful jar full of expensive perfume and she pours it on Jesus' head. And it's quite a picture, right? Jesus may or may not be done eating. Uh, He's met this woman maybe for the first time. And this woman admires him so much that she is willing to pour this costly, costly substance all over him. It was a treatment fit for a king in that culture. And she gives him what was likely a family heirloom, right? This jar of, of perfume would have maybe been passed generation to generation as kind of like a savings account for if the family ever was in dire need, they could sell this for a substantial amount of money. And she has, I think, based just on her devotion to Jesus and I believe a prompting of the Holy Spirit, 
come and give in this gift to Jesus. So I believe God the Father sends this woman to Jesus to anoint him, to prepare him for what was coming. Jesus himself says, when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare for my burial. He receives this gift, strange as it might seem, as confirmation and and preparation for what God is about to do and for what he is about to do. And friends, this is an anointing for a a really difficult season for Jesus, a really difficult moment, right? He will suffer tremendous pain. He will die. And now it is also anointing for what will come after that, for Jesus being raised up to become the one true king, for his identity as king. But first, it's a preparation for suffering, and that Jesus calls that out for grief and pain and death. And as I've, um, I've been reflecting on this idea of anointing, I've been painting the ceilings of our new house, right? And I'm getting literally doused in paint um, every night. And it's hard to get off. And I've been thinking of these hours of hard labor and these aching arms and paint-covered skin as a sort of anointing. That might be a stretch. I understand. But for my new calling in ministry, right, as a layperson, as an accountant full-time, for Matt and I as we're entering a new chapter of life together, and for our new house, for the life and maybe grief that will happen in its walls. It's both the hard and the good, the suffering and the joy. And Jesus calls his anointing in Matthew 26, first and foremost, as an anointing for his death. It's perhaps this experience that will give him the resolve to continue, to not run away, to step forward into the will God has for him. And friends, there are times in our lives when I think God prepares us for the difficult seasons and even for suffering, and not always through literal oil. Although we do, I think sometimes oil can be really helpful. I don't know if you know this, but our local advisory team, when we first moved into this building, we used oil and anointed and prayed through every room of this building. And literally over every door, we put a cross of oil as a way to say we've anointed this building for God's use with us. God's been using this building long before us. Don't hear that. But for our congregation to also flourish here, have funerals here, have weddings here, and live life here. God uses all kinds of ways to anoint through his Holy Spirit. It's not just through physical oil. And I think if we're paying attention, it's those moments that spur us towards stepping into new seasons. I was on a women's retreat a few weeks ago uh, with about 12 women from Bethany Northeast. It was a super special time. Uh, And one of the women who attended was there, and she's here today. She doesn't know I'm calling her out, but one of the women who was there um, told me that she was on this retreat seeking uh, to prepare for the birth of her second child in a few weeks. She was also in a season of transition out of her job. And I was like, that's so cool that she was seeking God out and his anointing on her for this new life she's bringing into the world. The, there will be pain involved, I'm pretty sure. Uh, There will also be super beautiful life at the end of that. And she was seeking God's anointing out. We can seek God's anointing out when we know something is coming. But we won't always know what we are being prepared for. We can also allow God to surprise us. As I'm sure Jesus was, maybe he knew she was coming. I'm guessing he was surprised when this woman showed up at the door. And yet he welcomed her presence. He did not condemn her as she cared for him. 
And perhaps we will be prepared for a, a, a conflict like sheep. Perhaps we'll be prepared for a new position of leadership in our jobs or in our ministries. Perhaps we'll be prepared for positions that leadership requires sacrifice and wisdom. And we need preparation for that. And, of course, God may be preparing some of us for seasons of suffering and hardship. But our posture is called to be like that of Jesus, holding open our hands, knowing that God may be using our current random encounters even, or unusual circumstances and to ends we cannot see, to things that are in the future. And trusting that if it's in a season of sacrifice or suffering ahead, God will have prepared us as a shepherd prepares his sheep for battle. And though we may still be wounded, right? We, we will even, every one of us, face death one day. And those we love will. God's spirit is anointing us for all of that. It doesn't mean we'll always feel prepared. I think as we'll see, even Jesus didn't necessarily feel fully prepared. But God promises, I will be there on the side, other side, ready to heal and mend and restore. And this brings us to the third symbol in Psalm 23, the symbol of an overflowing cup. And the psalmist David writes that the Lord has prepared a table before him and then has anointed his head with oil. And now that his cup overflows, and an overflowing cup is usually a sign of great abundance, right? Of having plenty, which is beautiful and it's true. This is the promise of what God has holds for us and says we will ultimately realize not only in grace and mercy, which we are able to enjoy now, oh, abundance of grace and mercy, but we will also actually one day have plenty to eat, plenty of everything we need. Not only us, but all people who call in Jesus' name will have that when he returns. But what does this mean for a sheep that there's an overflowing cup in this analogy? One more time, we're going back to the sheep. And there is a chance David has moved on from the sheep metaphor, like I've said. But what I learned is that for sheep, an overflowing cup could be a cup of brandy mixed with water. Because a shepherd would use this cup of brandy and water and go out in the coldest of nights and during blizzards and would actually share some of his own brandy um, mixed with water with the sheep to revive them if they've stopped moving and are near freezing to death. That the little bit of alcohol would warm them enough to get them through the night. It was a cup that was shared with any sheep that had need of it, right? So long as it never ran out. Because they're up in the wilderness. It's not an endless supply of brandy. So I imagine that a cup of this mixture that overflows would give life and warmth to any sheep, to every sheep, without fear of a single one being lost. It's a cup that provides life from the stores of the shepherd. It's a pretty cool analogy, actually. Now, the cup is also a symbol, of course, used in two different stories in Matthew 26 from Jesus' life. And we're going to look briefly at these to close. Uh, first, we'll see Jesus is still sitting at the Passover table. And in verse 26, he takes a loaf of bread. This should maybe be familiar to you. He takes a loaf of bread while they're eating, gives thanks for it, and then he breaks the bread and gives it to his disciples and says, take and eat, this is my body. And then, which would have been shocking to them, by the way. And then he takes a cup and he gives thanks for it as well. And he says, drink from this cup, every one of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. 
I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus offers this overflowing cup of forgiveness and mercy and grace, and it says every one of you to everyone at the table, to Judas, presumably. Matthew's gospel does not show Judas leaving any point here, though he has been called out pretty specifically. In fact, the very next sentence we see Jesus speak in Matthew 26 is this. He says, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. He knows this, and he still shares his very body and blood with every one of them. And after this happens, this cup uh, kind of changes its analogy a little bit. It's really interesting that cup is the word used again because Jesus takes his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, a place where he's going to stop and pray. He knows he has only a few more hours, if that, before he will be arrested and sort of his, what we call his passion begins, his suffering begins. And in a rare moment of vulnerability for Jesus, now I don't think that Jesus wasn't vulnerable. I think he was with his disciples, but we don't see it very often in the scripture. He shows it here. He says, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Will you stay here and keep watch with me? I need you, he's saying. In other words, to his friends. And he goes a little farther into the garden and asks, Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. This cup is too full. It's too much. Must it be death? Must it be now? If we ever doubt whether Jesus was human, this moment reminds me. He was facing his own death. He wasn't sure he was ready. He wanted to know if there was any other way. And this cup that Jesus is talking about, he knows he will suffer, but he also, even in the very framing of his question to God, knows that there's a purpose in it. He knows that God is going to use it, but he still wants to know, is there any other way this could happen, right? And Jesus ultimately, because he's holding on to this purpose in what's going to happen, he pours out his cup, he empties it so that ours might be full. He does what every one of us will have to do. He does face death. Every one of us, as far as I know, will also die. And yet he chooses it. And God chooses the cross. God chooses to experience death so that we might know his love for us. So that we might find hope as death is not the final word. And this symbol of hope in the cup is a symbol of both death and life. And we often jump to the life and we forget the death. It's easy to jump to Easter, to not attend Good Friday. This isn't, you don't have to come to Good Friday service. But we tend to just try to get to that resurrection. We forget this part. And it's super important that we experience, when we come to the communion table, we remember Jesus' death and then his resurrection. Because without one, the other is meaningless. And so Jesus embraces death. Ultimately, he claims victory over it and offers that victory to every one of us. The Father does not spare his own son, though, even when Jesus asks to be spared, even if, when he was asked if there any other way. And we, as far as we know, none of us will be spared some of these suffering and death experiences either. And yet we know is a, this beautiful symbol of the cup that we are brought through that too, that we have another side, And it's the beauty of these symbols. There is a cup of overflowing life for us. 
None of us are immune from the trials of this life. And the beauty of Psalm 23 is it doesn't gloss over them, right? It doesn't pretend they don't exist. It doesn't, but it looks them full on. As Jesus looked his death, I think, full on. And it says we have a shepherd who has given us his life so that we could find hope beyond the worst suffering and death. My hope for each of us today is that we would learn to expect God to lead us into situations of conflict, into potential suffering even. Ultimately, we will experience the death of those around us or in our own. But that every time we follow that leading, God will prepare us for anything we'll face. Though we may not feel fully prepared, and that the far side of that suffering, it reveals abundant life. If you are facing trials, whether you're overwhelmed as a parent today, and I know there are some of you, or facing infertility, or facing depression and anxiety, or facing a sickness, or maybe you're just transitioning or moving, or something God's doing in you. Some of those are dark seasons. I'd encourage you to ask God for an anointing, a preparation for what you are going to be facing. And that you would seek the shepherd who says, I have been there. I already went up to the high country. There are some dangers up there. But there is abundant life there. And there is everything you need. You just keep climbing, right? We're going to come to the Lord's table today. And we're going to receive a cup that is the symbol of God's death and God's life and the life that ultimately wins the day. And I hope that you can walk through this week experiencing that beautiful tension. Yeah, I'll invite our worship team back up. And experiencing God's provision in your life and preparation in your life for whatever this next season is. Let's pray and we'll come to the table. God, thank you. Those words seem even inadequate for what you have done for us. Thank you that you are our shepherd, that you have taken every measure, God, to lead us to abundant life, to nourishment, to find everything we need. God, would we seek you and follow you no matter, God, what we face? Would we trust in your promise, God, that you have life at the end of it? Thank you, Jesus, for your life. In Jesus' name, amen.